We're carrying on in our series in Romans, and this morning we're thinking about our hope, the spirit of sonship. Let me tell you about my friend Phil. He's the fostering recruitment officer for Liverpool City Council. He and his wife have two birth children, and they decided to explore and eventually be approved for fostering. George was three and a half when he went to live with them. One day, Phil discovered that George, who was now four, had drawn a circle with a dot in the middle on the walls of every room in the house, using a felt-tip pen, permanent. Some parents would have gone ballistic, but as a foster parent, Phil thought, what's this all about? George said, it's a force field, as he pre pressed the little dot on the wall and went beep, and then walked into the living room and pressed the circle with the dot on the other side of the wall. Beep, it keeps us safe. George was with Phil and his family for 16 months. A court case had ruled that his birth parents were unable to look after him and he would never be able to go back to live with them. An adoptive family was found for George, but 20 months after he had left Phil and his family, there was unexpected news. Phil got a phone call saying, do you remember that little boy, George? You're the only person in the world that he's connected with. Could you take him back? Sadly, the adoption had broken down. About two years passed, and although having George back hadn't been entirely plain sailing, things were going pretty well. Then one day, Phil realised that George had been ominously quiet and went to see what he was doing. He found him sitting on the living room floor, surrounded by shards of broken glass, a framed photo of Phil, his wife and their two birth children, taken years previously, long before George had arrived in their lives, lay in pieces. George had broken the frame and prized it apart. He'd taken the photo out and with a marker pen, drawn a stick figure of a small child with the most enormous smile, himself, standing beside Phil's wife and just behind his daughter. He'd even tried to write his name in. We can show you that photograph now. It was George's way of saying that he wanted to be in the picture, that he wanted to be part of the family. Since then, Phil and his wife have adopted George and he's now part of their family. He has a dad, a mum, a brother and a sister. And uh, you can actually read about that story on the BBC website. It's, uh, they've changed all the names. Phil is his real name. Uh, George has changed. But uh, it's a lovely, lovely story. And this morning we're thinking about what it means to have been drawn into the picture of God's family, to be one of his children. Anytime that we talk about the fatherhood of God, we have to recognise that not everybody's experience of human fathers is a totally positive one. We're also talking about what it means to be adopted. So I apologise in advance if there's anyone for whom either of these things raise issues or hurts. I'd encourage you to chat to someone about it. And I know that the prayer ministry team would love to pray with you and for you. Indeed, Erica and I would also be available as well. So far in our journey through Romans 8, we've been reminded that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But even though there's an ongoing struggle for our minds and what we will set them upon, we have the spirit 
the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, living inside us, and because of that we can know life and peace. Paul tells his readers that living by the spirit means putting to death the misdeeds of the body and living. Living not just an okay life, but a life in all its fullness and richness. He now goes on to tell us why this great power, power over sin, is available to us. It's because we are sons or children of God. So when he talks about being led by the Spirit, it is in the context of being led to hate the things the Spirit hates, namely sin, and love the things that the Spirit loves, namely Christ and what it means to live for him. I talked about being adopted, George being adopted into Phil's family. For Paul's readers, those who are part of Roman society, there would have been a very clear understanding of what being adopted meant. It usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. He'd then adopt someone as an heir. It could be a child, a youth, or an adult. The moment that the adoption occurred, several things were immediately true of the new son. First, his old debts and legal obligations were paid. Second, he got a new name and was instantly heir of all the father had. Third, his new father became instantly liable for all his future accounts, actions, such as debts or crimes. And fourth, the new son also had new obligations to honour and please his father. The parallels with our adoption as children of God are clear. We've been forgiven for the sin of the past, for the sins of the now, and indeed for the future as well. We have a new status and a new relationship with our Heavenly Father. And finally, we have a new responsibility to honour God and please him. Paul also shows us his subversive nature and the subversive nature of the gospel by clearly applying the idea of adoption to sonship, which is what we read in the NIV version, and all that entails, not just to sons, but also to daughters. He takes what was a masculine-only institution and declares that in Christ, the idea of empowering through adoption with all the privileges that entails is equally applicable to men and women. There is to be no distinction. So what does it mean to be a child of God? There's a school of thought that says that all human beings are God's children. Indeed, Paul, when speaking in Athens in Acts 17, talks of us all as God's offspring. But he then goes on to talk of the need to repent. And that's the distinction and contrast that we see here. We become God's reconciled children only by adoption or new birth. When we say, I want to be part of the family and draw ourselves into the picture, just as George did, we enter into a new relationship with our Heavenly Father, a new relationship with all his other children, and a new relationship with the world in which we live. And we'll be exploring that new relationship with our world and our responsibilities over the next couple of weeks. It also means, just in case we hadn't got the message from all that's gone before in chapter 8, that we have the Holy Spirit living inside us. As Mike reminded us last week, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. So what privileges 
can we enjoy as children of God? Let me suggest a number to you. First of all, security. We're told in Romans 8, the start of verse 15, that the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. We're not to fear, for we have a different relationship to that of the slave to their master. For the slave, there is obedience through the constant fear of punishment, fear of being sold, or even the fear of being killed. Whilst we no longer tolerate slavery, as Paul and his readers understood, there are many ways today in which people are still slaves. Slaves to different things, such as money, ambition, status, relationships, maybe slaves to particular circumstances or demanding family members. In contrast, we have security as God's children, a relationship that's not characterised by fear or by a sense of worthlessness. We're to enjoy the security that comes from a relationship that's guaranteed, that's not dependent on how well we behave or how good we are at doing our job or how the world or those around us perceive us. It's a relationship that is for now and it will last into eternity. Slaves would have had no authority. It's their job to do as they were told or suffer the consequences. The children in a household would have had authority because of their parents. In the same way, we have authority as God's children. We have authority over sin and the devil. We have authority over those fears and doubts that can sometimes plague us, which can lead us to question ourselves, to question our value, to even question how God perceives us. So we have security. Also, I suggest we have intimacy. Verse 15 tells us, by him we cry, Abba, Father. As I'm sure many of us are familiar with, Abba was an Aramaic term which is best translated, Daddy, which is the term, a term of greatest in intimacy. No Jew would have dared address God in this way. It was far too familiar. And yet we see Jesus both using the term in the Garden of Gethsemane and telling his disciples that this is how they are to address God when they pray, how we are to address him, our Father in heaven. He empowers them and us to speak to their Heavenly Father, literally as a small child speaks to their father in the same confident and childlike manner. We can approach an all-powerful creator who sustains every atom in existence, and we can call him Daddy. We have that kind of intimate relationship with him. I wonder if there are times when our rightful recognition an acknowledgement of God as the mighty God, the all-powerful creator. I wonder sometimes whether we focus on this to the exclusion of thinking of God as our heavenly father, who longs for us to simply talk to him and listen. That said, we often see better at doing the former to the exclusion of the latter. So security, intimacy, and I would suggest also assurance we're told in verse 16 that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When we cry out to God as Abba, somehow his Spirit comes alongside us and gives us assurance that we truly are in his family. 
I think it's difficult to quantify this. So exactly how does his spirit testify with ours? Well, imagine, if you will, a trial going on with a defendant accused of a crime. There seems to be some evidence against the defendant and also some evidence in favour of their claim of innocence. And suddenly the defence comes in with a new witness who can have been proved to have been at the scene of the crime. And the witness says, I was there and the defendant was not. Therefore, they're innocent. This person testifies with the defendant. The witness says the same thing and puts the verdict beyond doubt. The idea of God's Spirit joining with ours would have been readily understandable as the Old Testament required two witnesses to establish a testimony. We know that we trust Christ. We have God's promises. We see our lives growing and changing. We even see God intervening in our lives and the lives of those around us. So we have confidence that we are God's children. And yet what Paul's talking about here is that additional assurance that direct testimony of the Spirit in our hearts. We may not feel it all the time, but there will have been times, I would suggest, maybe when praying, maybe when worshipping, maybe when reading the Bible, times when we feel ourselves deeply assured that God is our Father, our Abba. So security, intimacy, assurance, and finally, inheritance. Now, if we are children then we are heirs, verse 17. Our future is secure. Paul's readers would have known that in ancient times the firstborn son was the heir and he would receive the lion's share of the family's wealth, even if there were other children. This assured that the family's influence was maintained and not dissipated or diminished. Paul turns this on its head and says that we are all heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We're not promised an easy time, for as, we are promised, for as we are promised to share in Christ's glory, we will also share in his sufferings. Part of that inheritance, the now part, is all the resources that God's Holy Spirit makes available to us. Let me finish with three questions which I ask of myself. Maybe they're relevant to you as well. Am I actually living as someone who is adopted into God's family with all the rights and privileges that come with that? Or is there a sense of fear, a sense of failure, a sense of unworthiness at times? Let me remind you of those words of Paul. The spirit you receive does not make you a slave so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption. When the prodigal son returned home, determined to say that he sinned against heaven and against his father, and that he was no longer worthy to be called his son, what was the father's reaction? Reject him? No. Let him wallow in his despair until he'd learned his lesson? No. His father runs to him when he's still a long way off, and they have a feast to celebrate his return. Despite what the son had done and how he felt, He'd never stopped being part of the family. Secondly, does my relationship with my Heavenly Father include the intimacy that is summed up in those words, Abba, Father? 
Am I able to speak to him about what is on my heart and allow him to speak to me and reassure me by the presence and testimony of his spirit in my life? And finally, am I asking God to fill me afresh with his spirit each day, both to equip me in his service, but also to fill me with his presence and power so that my mind might be set on what he desires. It was Dwight L. Moody, the 19th century evangelist, who urged his listeners to keep being filled with the Spirit. And when challenged as to why he kept saying this, replied, I need to be filled with the Spirit every moment of every day because I leak. Amen. Thank you.